Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Tornadoes, hurricanes, derechos, blizzards, all are weather events that wreak havoc on man and beast. It's said that we talk about the weather, but there is nothing we can do about it. Well, today's guest is one of the nation's most noted meteorologists and a longtime friend of mine. Michael Smith grew up in Kansas City and started his career at WKY Radio and Television while he was a student of meteorology at the University of Oklahoma. The only credibility I'm going to give the Sooners since I'm a proud OSU graduate. (laughs) Monsoon Mike, as the crew called him, was a prodigy. When I first saw him on TV and heard him on radio, it was clear that meteorology was his passion and he was wise beyond his years. He was good-looking, articulate, and excited. He has been a leading force in meteorology and applying weather science to real-world warnings during his long career. But the coincidental part of this story is that Mike and I met in May of 1974 as I began my career as a farm broadcaster at WKY. I will tell you of other encounters as we go, plus other things about him that I'm astounded of his skills. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. It's so nice to speak to you. It is good to hear your voice. And remember that uh, just post-college, kid, in fact, I'm not sure you were totally out of college, but you were on the payroll when I got to WKY. And even though you were younger than me, you were senior to me, but we were both considered kids at that station. Yes. Uh, in addition to Monsoon Mike, they often called me the weather kid. And I started doing broadcasts in prime time for WKY TV and radio when I was a sophomore at the University of Oklahoma School of Meteorology. Well, that school really today remains one of the top ones in the nation, if not the top, for meteorologists. And I have friends who have a daughter now who has a PhD in meteorology. And she just advised them a couple of years ago don't buy a house on a barrier island, and they bought a house on Sanibel, <laughs> just offshore oh of Fort Myers. So oh I talked to them this morning. Your fascination, Mike, with severe weather goes all the way back to your childhood, doesn't it? Yes, it does. At the ripe old age of five years old, an F5 tornado, that's the holy grail of tornadoes, and they're extremely rare went through South Kansas City, just south of where I live. It destroyed my kindergarten. It killed 44 people. And we were close enough that we had debris in our front yard. The next day, my mother did something she shouldn't have done, which is drive my brothers and me, along with a friend of my mother's, through ground zero. And as you know, uh, meteorologists say about F5 tornadoes, usually privately among themselves, that an F5 tornado is so powerful, it destroys everything and cleans up after. Foundation after foundation was swept clean. 
You could maybe see a commode. You could see a pipe spouting water into the air, but there was just nothing there. And so even though I was five years old and I was sitting in the back seat of a car, I was looking through the windows and I said to myself, anything that could do this had to be pretty interesting. And from that time on, I knew I wanted to be a meteorologist and I've spent, well, over 50 years doing it. So it didn't traumatize you, it inspired you. Well, it did traumatize me somewhat. Uh, like everyone in South Kansas City for a couple of years, uh, there was some apprehension whenever the sky got really dark and the thunder started to rumble. But I tried to take that apprehension and turn it into something constructive. And we've been doing severe weather um, since then, not just limited to tornadoes. My career's been about all types of extreme weather, including their ratios, which are extremely powerful and long-lived straight-line windstorms, ice storms, blizzards, all types of extreme weather. The thing that has moved me so far in this is that our shared memory is of the Union City tornado in Oklahoma. Yes. I didn't even yes. know you yet, but I yes. was there. After college, I moved to Union City, Oklahoma, 1972, and I became the BOAG teacher there. And in May of 1973, that tornado came out of the uh, west, northwest, and ran straight through that town. And as I remember, it was the first proven, verified F5. No, it wasn't the first F5. There, there I want to No, I didn't mean the first. The first one that was actually proven by the Severe Storms Lab that the wind could go that fast. Well, right? yes. It, 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 what was important about the Union City tornado was twofold. Number one, the National Severe Storms Laboratory had two experimental Doppler radars. And if we could get a tornado in a small area of central Oklahoma between the two radars, we could take 3D measurements of the storm. Tragically, for the people of Union City, that tornado went into that little slice of territory, and we learned things about the structure of the internal winds of a tornado that we're still using today. Secondly, the year before, in March of 1972, the University of Oklahoma, along with the Severe Storms Lab, started a student storm chase program because they had these Doppler radars, but unless someone was there to actually document whether a tornado occurred, we didn't know whether they were a step up in terms of tornado warning accuracy. And for the first time, there were two teams of students, one close up, the other farther away, that documented the entire life cycle of the tornado, and we're using some of that knowledge to even today. So the Union City tornado was very much a watershed event in meteorology. And Ken, I know a lot of people in Union City suffered, but their suffering was not for nothing. It helped improve the tornado warning system in ways that we're still using today. Well, it occurred in the afternoon, and the Union City people had their own tornado watching system. They paid attention to the sky because of where they were and the times they had been hit before somewhere in the region. 
And that tornado formed about five miles uh, west and slightly north of the town. And I think they said it took a half hour for it to get there. And yes, so they were, all, they were all in the storm shelter at the school at the time it hit. It was a very slow-moving tornado. And that was beneficial in other ways in that, as you mentioned, it gave people time to take shelter. But it also gave us time to get many, many individual readings. Think of a Doppler radar as something like a medical x-ray. And if you can get more slices and more focus on whatever the medical problem might be, the doctor will have more insight. Well, because that was a slow-moving tornado, meteorologists got more insight into its development and how to use that information to warn of future storms. My guest is Mike Smith, meteorologist, uh, now retired. Mike and I have had this uh, bond since the beginning of both of us interested in severe weather, him professionally, me as just a participant in life. And that Union City tornado was a traumatic time for me. It didn't inspire me maybe as much as the one in Kansas City inspired you. But when you were talking about an F5 destroying everything and then cleaning up after itself, it almost makes me want to cry because I walked through that town as the VOAG teacher, uh, knew there, you know, a year and a half, and documented all these t- places on a piece of paper because somebody from a, from a news station had asked me if I could count how many houses were destroyed. And uh, only two people died in that storm, Mike. Right. Two elderly people died. But the damage was unbelievable. But you only by looking for the slabs of concrete could you tell where places had been. In a tornado like Union City or the Greensburg, Kansas tornado of 2007, the F5s, the really, really strong tornadoes, almost everyone will get disoriented because our our human minds carry mental pictures of towns and things that are close to us. As a photographer friend of mine said about the Greensburg tornado, and it would certainly apply to Union City, simply by standing up, you were the tallest object in the area. Mm. And our brains have trouble assimilating that. And so it's very easy to become disoriented. It's even happened to me when I've been in the damage path of F4 and F5 tornadoes. And I'm sure it's happening now in Sanibel Island and Captiva and the areas that were hit so hard by Hurricane Ian and that hurricane storm surge. When there's nothing that looks like it did before, it's very easy to become disoriented. Take a breath here. Mike Smith, um, you left Channel 4 in Oklahoma City and moved to, I think it was called CARD, K-A-R-D, television. At that time, yes. In uh, Wichita, Kansas. Right. Uh, We bid you farewell, uh, what was it, 1975? Yes, very good, 1975, Ken. Yeah, a memorable time in my life. And uh, and then... uh, you moved to St. Louis after right. being there. Right. That was at KTVI-TV, and we did a lot of interesting things at KTVI. We had a Deray show uh, come through a few weeks before I left to return to Wichita, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, but because new research had been published literally weeks before that Deray show arrived, we were able to 
prepare for it very quickly and give the viewers of St. Louis coverage that had never occurred before. And we had a wind measuring device and we turned the camera around and we were able to show people that the winds at the TV station were exceeding 80 miles an hour, which helped convince people to take shelter. And even though it was the greatest natural disaster to ever hit St. Louis in terms of geographic area, there wasn't a single fatality. So during that period of the 70s, 80s, 90s, we were learning very quickly about types of extreme weather and better ways to warn of it. When you um, went to Wichita, you stayed there and headed to St. Louis, and you talked about that. And then I wound up going to Wichita. And one day on television, they had a picture of you getting off a business jet or an airplane or something or they had a picture of a guy with a briefcase. Maybe they weren't even showing your yeah, face. What a good memory you have. And I thought, okay, okay, what? And then I thought, oh, my gosh, is Mike Smith coming back? And then it was KSNW, I think, at that point. They had changed right. their call letters. And you came back, and the deal was, it appears, that you did meteorology for the station, but you also started your company, Weather Data. Yes, Weather Data Incorporated. I started in Wichita in August of 1981, and we did a number of things, but our focus was providing site-specific warnings of extreme weather. Site-specific warning. Okay, everything up to that point had been National Weather Service general area warnings, specific if they could identify it, but nobody had been up private practice business that didn't appear until that time. That's correct. We, To my knowledge, we were the first company to try to do site-specific warnings of extreme weather. Up until that time, we would get a tornado warning that would be one, two, three, or when I lived in St. Louis, the National Weather Service would sometimes put out tornado warnings for seven counties at once. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge problem for two reasons. Obviously, tornadoes compared to the size of seven counties are tiny. And so it created a great number of perceived false alarms, whether there was actually a tornado or not. And then for businesses, the cost of shutting down an assembly line, for example, an automotive assembly line are astronomical. And so people started not paying attention to the tornadoes and people were dying because the tornado warnings were so big they had no credibility. So we started a company and and we had clients like Ford Motor Company. In fact, all of the major North American car manufacturers were our clients. We put out track-specific tornado warnings. For example, going back to Greensburg, we told the Union Pacific Railroad that the tornado would cross the track in this little 12-mile segment and actually stop trains, and the engineers on the trains could actually see the tornado when it was illuminated by lightning, but they were completely safe. So we saved these companies, and we can document this, billions of dollars while saving hundreds of lives. And it it was a new concept. It worked out very, very well. It was important to bring tornadoes down, tornado warnings, pardon me, 
down to an actionable size. Seven counties, people don't do anything. It's perceived as, ah, it's 50 miles away from me. It's not going to bother me. But if you can tell them one particular spot is going to get hit, people will then take action. Mike has written a book, and I didn't know that when I contacted you because I just was looking for the people of my life that I wanted to talk to, I thought, who had been the most interesting in their careers and in our interaction. But you published a book called Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather. Right. And it's only got your name on the front of it. So I thought, oh, no, uh, it's not going to be that good because you're not a journalist, you know, like I am. And so I began to read. My goodness, you're a good writer. And I'm not just bragging on you. You are a great writer. I was like I was in a murder mystery a few times of what was going to take place next. I thoroughly am enjoying, I will admit I'm not done, thoroughly enjoying reading this book. So, folks, it's called Warnings. But the chapters in it, several of them I knew kind of what it was about. But when you go through and explain these things, they are amazing. One of them that you had, you said, the day that weather grew up. It it was a month after you and I became acquainted. There was a major tornado outbreak in central Oklahoma. It affected the Oklahoma City area. Oklahoma County and Oklahoma City were hit by five separate tornadoes that day. In the entire known history of the United States or even of the world, there's never been another time where five tornadoes have hit a city in a single day. There were tornadoes, bad tornadoes, all over central and northeast Oklahoma. And in central Oklahoma, WKY, Gary England on KWTV, Fred Norman on KOCO, every TV station had professional meteorologists and radar. And even though there was incredible damage, there wasn't a single fatality in the Oklahoma City viewing area. Whereas in the Tulsa viewing area, none of the TV stations had radar. None of them had meteorologists. And the death toll tragically was well into the double digits. And a lot of people were injured as well as a lot of fatalities. Is this big outbreak that went all the way to Ohio? No, no, that actually was six weeks before. And one of my professors at OU went with Dr. Fujita for the official uh, storm evaluation after that huge Midwest tornado outbreak on April 3rd, 1974. And after class, John McCarthy was, was his name, called me aside and said, Mike, the warning system broke down. You're on TV. You need to be thinking about what you would do if we had a similar situation in Oklahoma. And I took John's advice to heart, thought about how I would handle a situation like that. And as fate would have it, six weeks later, we had an almost identical situation. We handled it very well. The TV station, Ken, you may not remember this, got 73 letters from viewers with sentiments like, thank goodness you were there. You saved my family's lives. I mean, putting, reading these letters brought tears to your eyes. The, the uh, editorial cartoonist at the Daily Oklahoman, 
who was a big critic of TV. He used to savage TV because he thought it was uh, frivolous. Well, he published an editorial cartoon of a man patting his TV set saying, thank goodness you were there. And on the TV set, it said TV storm warnings. I mean, this this was amazing. That was when you realized that uh, it was TV worth watching. But in that part of the country, if you here in the Midwest have not been to the Plains states, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, you don't get the number of tornadoes that, that we would get down there or have the fear of them that people had. I mean, the fear, Mike, was already there. The solution was not until they got those warnings that you guys started putting out. And at that time, there was a man who had incredible influence over television news. It was the late Frank Magid, M-A-G-I-D. And he had a consulting company that advised various TV stations who were his clients at how to improve their television news and how to get higher ratings and make the station more profitable. Well, a few days later, after that tornado outbreak, a man I didn't recognize was being escorted through the hallways by our assistant general manager at WKY. And I was introduced to him. I didn't know who Frank Maggot was, but he talked to me. He talked to Ernie Schultz, our news director, and a number of other people. And almost like magic, within six months, the... I'm not talking about women meteorologists here, but the frivolous TV weather girls, they used to call them, disappeared. The hand puppets that did TV weather in Tulsa and a number of other markets went away. Radar started popping up on TV stations all over the country. It it was almost like a switch had been flipped, and it was because Mr. Magid found out what we did and told his TV stations, look, this is this is the way to give your weather credibility and get better ratings for your weather. And that's why I call it the day TV weather grew up. Well, and that's the bottom line. Magid was there to get them better ratings. Weather uh, in that area, everybody will turn on their TV set and they'll turn it on to their favorite weather person and they'll watch you. They'll cue you at least enough to find out if the problem is in their area. And then there's the drama of that. You know, in Oklahoma, I have watched them report on tornadoes that came across the Red River on the south side of the state and go into Kansas over the course of about two or three hours with helicopters flying along, feeding the information back. That's worth watching. It is worth watching. And one of the ironies is when you talk to people in New York City or Los Angeles or Washington, or San Francisco, they're under the impression that they have sophisticated television weather. But the sophisticated television weather isn't on the East Coast or the West Coast. It's in the central United States with helicopters, mobile units on the ground, chasing tornadoes, providing live coverage, and giving the storm warnings credibility so people will actually act on the warning to save their lives. Wow. Mike Smith is my guest. He's published a book that I think is worth reading. It's called Warnings. Mike Smith, simple name is that, but very interesting and uh, complexities in it well explained. 
Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've had your hearing aids for the last 17 years, and certainly they made a positive difference in my life. I'd like to ask you something about the modern day, though, and the research that you have found. Is there a link between an uncorrected hearing loss and dementia? Uh, yes, there is. The research came out about 10 years ago from Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Frank Lynn. He found that you are anywhere from two to five times more likely to develop dementia with an untreated hearing loss. And, you know, everyone says, well, how can that be? And when you think about how hearing works, sound comes into the ear, it hits the eardrum, eardrum vibrates, sends the signal over three little bones. The bones then send the signal to the cochlea that has 15,000 tiny little hairs inside of there. Those little hairs, as they get damaged, will either break off, get brittle, not move as well. The correct signal doesn't get to the brain. And think about it, you know, like, um, you know, radio, TV, any kind of signal, that signal gets jumbled. You can't piece together what's being said. So you struggle to watch the show. That is your brain with an untreated hearing loss. What happens is your brain pulls from two areas to compensate for that untreated hearing loss. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait. So cognitive being how we understand, how we converse, that gets actually damaged because it's getting pulled from to focus on an untreated hearing loss. That's where the link to dementia actually comes in. So it's because we're pulling re valuable resources to focus on an untreated hearing loss, it speeds up that, that aging of the brain. So you're anywhere from, even with a mild hearing loss, you're twice as likely to develop dementia. Taylor, thank you very much. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing, 877-955-4020, or online at iowahearing.com. A general question for you, Mike. If you were to really look at our lifetimes, what have the, been the advancements in meteorology that really stand out to you? Oh, I think two things. Doppler radar, which has allowed us to do a much better job of warning of tornadoes and hurricanes as well. And then what we call computer modeling, taking meteorological information from the entire globe, uh, not only at ground level, but all the way up to about 50,000 feet above the ground, put it into the most powerful computers in the world. And when I say the most powerful computers, I'm talking about computers that can do math problems at the rate of a trillion per second. Yet even with that computer power, it takes about five to six hours to complete a single forecast from these computer models. Those two things have allowed us to immensely improve our ability to forecast severe weather, as well as improve our ability to warn of severe weather. And so I would say those are the most important scientific challenges. The other challenge is the communications. As, as I've said over and over throughout my career, it doesn't do any good to make a perfect forecast if no one listens to it. Mm -hmm. So over the last 20 years or so, we've started to pay attention to what you might call the last mile of the 
severe thunderstorm or tornado or tsunami warning. And that is, how do you get it to people and how do you get them to take cover? Having lived in South Central Kansas, Ken, I know you remember the Udall tornado of 1955. When you talk about tornado terror, that's one of the worst ever. It occurred after people had gone to bed at night. The tornado occurred without any warning whatsoever. Not only did people die from the direct effects of the tornado, a few people dashed into their basements when they realized what happened, and a couple of them drowned because the water tower was tipped over by the tornado. I mean, the, the stories out of Udall are just horrific, and, and you'll find some of them in my book. The thing I'm doing now is I'm working with a tornado shelter company called Survive a Storm, SurviveAStorm.com. And that company makes world-class tornado shelters, both below ground and above ground. And we've also created a brand new type of tornado warning system. I call it the meteorological smoke alarm. And if, but only if, you're in the direct path of a tornado or winds forecast to be 80 miles an hour or more, we ring your phones 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Meaning if there's a tornado watch when the newscast goes off at 1030, you don't have to stay up trying to figure out what's happening. You go to bed and your phone will wake you up if there's a, a tornado in the offing. And we also simultaneously send you an email that, with a snapshot of the radar and the exact location of your home in relation to the tornado or 80 mile an hour winds. And the idea here is to stop all these false alarms. You, I'm, I'm sure you know, Ken, if you've had a weather radio, it goes off at three o'clock in the morning sometimes because there's going to be one inch hail. Well, no one cares about that. We want to let you know when it's time to take action and then leave you alone the rest of the time. We call it Stormworn, and you'll find it also at the SurviveAStorm.com website. I want to go back to my youth in Oklahoma because we lived in uh, minimal housing, but we had a cellar, and everybody around us had some place below the ground they could get into to protect themselves. Even though our cellar uh, stunk terribly uh, and uh, had rats in it, and uh, we would have to sit on wooden benches down there. And my mother and father would take me down there, and my, along with my sister, and we would stay in that storm shelter as long as we were hearing the lightning uh, and thunder. And uh, then we'd see if it was okay. Dad would go out, and then we'd go back upstairs. But since that period of time, and moving us into really the 1990s, Mike, which is not that long ago, Oklahoma had tornadoes that started hitting uh, populated areas, more yes. Oklahoma, for example. Yes. And I, in 99, as I recall, I was doing a radio show uh, in Kansas City. And at the time, the internet was just coming along to where people could send email. And I knew the tornadoes had hit in Moore uh, and the surrounding area, but I didn't know anymore. And of course, I couldn't call in because all the lines were jammed, uh, whatever it might have been, because my brother lived in Oklahoma City. And so while I was sitting there, I got an email and it said, Kenny, we're all okay. They lived in Edmond mostly, 
But his wife's family, who lived in Moore, went outside, uh, got out of the storm cellar, and Junior found a dead infant in his yard. And I thought, oh, how terrible that could be. Well, what had happened was that the people across the street were new to the area. They had no storm shelter. They had this infant child. And so they went to the second floor of their house and stayed there for the tornado, which hit the house. And both of them were knocked unconscious and they found them, but they never, they didn't find the child. They didn't even know there was a child there because neither parent was awake. And three days later, after these people regained their senses, they were able to identify that baby. And I thought if only they had had a storm shelter, like we always had, this would never have happened. Rural Oklahoma had a number of storm shelters, most people. In fact, the one time the tornado started chasing me back in 1973, along with my then fiance, we ended up in a farmer's storm shelter until the storm had passed. Mike, were you par- were you parking with Kathleen? Is that what was going on? <laughs> well, we were out chasing. This was a couple of months before. You our call it whatever you want. We didn't ever call it chasing, but we had another word for it, but it worked the same. Well, I chased her for many years before I finally caught her, but we were out storm chasing. There was road construction near Chickasha, and so it slowed us down, allowed the tornado to catch up to us, and we had to just bail out and find shelter. But that's why the tornado warning business up until now has been pretty much siloed, Ken, You have the meteorologist on one side and you have the tornado shelter companies on the other side. And the two, frankly, didn't talk to each other. So Survive a Storm was kind enough to hire me as a consultant. And I said, look, our brand is Survive a Storm. So we've got to find a way to give people the notice that now's the time to use the shelter. And if you if you purchase a shelter, we package the service along with it. And then anyone who already has a basement or already has a storm shelter, you can sign up at the website and get this very valuable service. What is the website again? Surviveastormcommonspelling.com. Let me ask you one more thing. And I'd love to have you talk with me again, because there are so many things in your history that I would love to have you explain, and also the things you've written in your book. In the situation of these storm chasers, yes. and then there's also storm spotters, Yes. What, what, what do you think of those people? Are, they, are some of them truly thrill seekers that don't really help us any, or what's your definition of, of a person who does good work outside looking for tornadoes? By definition, a storm spotter is stationary, a storm chaser goes out to try to find the storms. This past April 29th, my wife and I were chasing a storm. It produced a tornado, F1 intensity. I mean, it wasn't a strong tornado, but there's no such thing as a non-dangerous tornado. The National Weather Service did not know the tornado was there until I sent them the instant notification including a photograph of the tornado as it was in progress. You're right, there are some thrill seekers out there, but most of the people who chase storms are very valuable assets to the meteorological community because we report 
where the tornadoes or large hail or whatever it might be are located. And so using Twitter and the hashtag in that particular case, KSWX, instantly the National Weather Service offices in Topeka and Wichita, because the tornado was on the border of their areas of warning responsibility, along with the Wichita media, which covered the area, instantly, within seconds, they knew that tornado was in progress, and the warning would have more credibility. Uh, Studies have shown that if you show people a picture of the tornado in progress, they're much more likely to go to the basement or take other precautions. So thanks to the internet, I'm, I'm really not much of a fan of the internet. I think it's a net negative for society, but that's one of the things the internet does very well is the ability to get instant warnings out. And so we, we've taken what we've known from a social science point of view about human behavior in extreme weather situations. We've taken the science that we've learned about, hey, a tornado is going to form in location X. So location X, Y, and Z need to take shelter. Uh, we, we have learned a lot. We're, we're saving lives. Uh, we've cut the death toll from tornadoes, Ken, by 95%. What that means is, in the past, if a tornado would have killed 100 people, today it would only kill five. That's an amazing, I mean, it's a Nobel Prize winning achievement that the public, you know, these warnings are out there. People don't understand what's behind them, where they come from. And that was my motivation for for writing the book Warnings. I I thought people needed to understand the story of how all of this life-saving work came to be. Well, it's amazing how much progress has taken place. But if we talk again, I would like for you to get into the weather service beginning roughly in the late 1800s on forward, which is in your book up to the early 1950s saying we are not going to give tornado warnings because we're not in that business. Right. And that just blows my mind that they would do that, especially when you have ever read the book, Isaac storm or seen any of the things that happened in the thirties, forties and fifties about tornadoes coming through and nobody knowing it. Ken, that the story of the weather bureau and that was its name at that time thinking that more people would die in the panic than in the tornado itself was was horribly misguided. Essentially, we learned nothing new about tornadoes from 1880 to 1950. That's a long time to go without advancing your knowledge. And we were having all of these tornadoes with triple-digit death tolls. Uh, As I mentioned in my book, people don't know that Baby Elvis Presley nearly died in the Tupelo tornado, and that tornado by itself killed over 200 white people. I say white people because in Mississippi at that time, they intentionally did not include the deaths of African Americans in the death toll. Some people believe more than 400 people died in that tornado. It's horrible that no attempt was made in that era to warn people that these storms were coming. But today, we simply don't have tornadoes that kill 400 people anymore. The tornadoes are the same as they've always been, but we've learned how to 
tell people the tornado's coming, and we've taught people how to respond and save their lives. Mike Smith, who was a television meteorologist for many years, uh, owned a company called Weather Data that pioneered advising companies of what was coming and trying to be specific in that. Uh, Some amazing stories of trains and planes that uh, he has been involved with throughout his career, has a book called Warnings. I'd love to talk to you again, Mike, but uh, I do enjoy every chance I get the opportunity. The feeling's mutual, Ken. I know a couple of times, what, we were in Washington, D.C. and simply ran into each other. Every time we get together, whether it's over the phone or through the Internet or in person, it's always a pleasure. And I've certainly enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.